Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that by his stripes we're healed from every deep and abiding scar of sin. We thank you that he has overcome for us on our behalf what we are not able to overcome on our own. Thank you for the forgiveness and grace and mercy that's given to us through Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us your word this morning, that you'd let us know what you want us to know, and that you'd make us more like Jesus. Father, may we not leave this place unchanged today. And Lord, we know we're not the only church of Jesus gathered in this community and around the world. And so we pray for your work among the other churches. God, we want to thank you for Pastor Fayez. Lord, I'm so glad he's my friend. So thankful to be his brother. Father, it just blesses me to hear of your work in his life, and I pray he would be blessed today. We thank you that you've allowed us to be a sending church for men and women who are living and serving in gospel ministry around the world. And I pray that you'd give wisdom to Pastor Fayez, not only in this morning, but throughout these weeks and days that lie ahead, that God, he would be a man who has supernatural wisdom in the decisions he has to make as a leader of your people. And Lord, I pray that you give your church unity, Father, and they would would endeavor to maintain the unity that you give to them by the power of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace and love for one another. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing among the people of this world, and we thank you for what you'll be doing among us in the moments that follow. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, we're going to start, really, our study this morning in verse 23. For those of you who aren't visiting with us this morning, um, this won't really stand out to you, but if you've been tracking along in this series in Hebrews, it might look like we're skipping over three verses that we didn't cover last week or the week before. And I just want to let you know that we're not skipping over the teaching or the principles about faith in those verses. As a matter of fact, um, two weeks ago in verses 13 through 16, uh, we talked about the fact that faith looks forward. Faith sees future blessings that we don't have yet. And faith, because of those future blessings that we don't have yet, faith lives like our future is better and brighter than our present or our past. We talked about that two weeks ago. And and I didn't have time on that morning to skip ahead to verses 20 through 22. But the reason why we're not going to go back over those is because these verses really are great illustrations of that truth, that faith sees future blessings we don't have yet and lives like our future's better and brighter than our past or our present. And just notice that. We'll read verses 20 through 22 uh, just to see that principle. Verse 20 says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. All three of those are examples of people who saw into the future blessings they did not have yet and lived in the moment like their future was better and brighter than their past or their present. So Isaac sees future blessing and he evokes that blessing there over his sons. Verse 21, Jacob does the exact same thing. Verse 22, Joseph does it very 
similar thing in that he sees the day that is coming when God will deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. And even though that won't happen for 400 more years, Joseph believed that future blessing would be there. And he even gave instructions about what was to happen to his body when Israel left Egypt. So, so, so Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all looked to the future. And they saw blessings and they lived like those future blessings were better and brighter. Now, the reason why I would go back over that is not only so you would know I'm not trying to skip over verses of scripture, it's because that principle will actually come back around here in the life of Moses. Let's pick up there in verse 23 and we'll see these verses that tell us about the life of Moses. The next picture of faith in Hebrews 11. Verse 23 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is the word of God for us this morning. And I hope you notice this section in Hebrews chapter 11 sort of serves as a mini-series on the life of Moses in the midst of this chapter on faith. The events of the verses that we just read cover a period of time, about 80 years, that comprise four different stages in the life of Moses. And so here's our plan. Um, This morning we're going to look at the first two stages of life that these verses cover, and we're going to see two principles about the faith that honors God and blesses us. The next week, we'll pick up where we leave off, and we'll talk a little bit more about the life of Moses. We'll see at least two more principles next week about faith that Hebrews 11 is showing for us. But let's just go to those first events. The very first events of Moses' life are pretty commonplace events. As a matter of fact, you may even share some things in common. The the Bible tells that the first events of Moses' life was that his parents conceived and he was born. Anybody share that story at all? Anybody at all? Anybody awake this morning at all? It's okay if you're not, apparently. Exodus 2 actually tells this part of Moses' story. The Jews are in slavery there in Egypt. For several hundred years, they'd been slaves under Pharaoh's rule. And Pharaoh began to be concerned about how this nation was growing under his watch. As a matter of fact, most scholars believe that Israel was about three million people strong when Moses goes back to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And so Pharaoh's concerned that if three million of his slaves band together and form a revolt, that would be very hard to suppress. And because of the dynamic of slave labor in Egypt, the the economy could collapse and the nation itself could collapse. So Pharaoh comes up with this plan. He orders all male children born to Jewish families to be immediately killed. And that is the world that Moses is born into. Now, listen to Exodus 2, 2, as it describes the event surrounding Moses' birth. Exodus chapter 2, verse 2 says, the woman, speaking of Moses' mom, conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was a fine child 
and she hid him for three months. Now, I want you to notice, that's pretty plain language used to describe those events. Notice how verse 23 of our text describes that same act. By faith, Moses, when he was born, and that's referring to Moses' parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now stop right there. What you see in these passages of scripture, and that verse right there, is describing the events surrounding the birth of Moses, and it says that hiding Moses was an act of faith by Moses' parents. I gotta be honest with you, the reason why this stands out to me is I was thinking about this and praying over this. I think about the circumstances surrounding Moses' birth, and I, I imagine faith to look a little bit different. Here's what I mean. Um, and it may be because I've watched so many uh, Disney cartoons that I think this way, but I imagine Moses' birth being an act of faith by his parents taking that beautiful child and reenacting the opening scene from Lion King. You know what I'm talking about? They just hold him up like this and walk around, behold our beautiful boy, right? I imagine that faith in that situation says, I'm not afraid of the king. I believe God is strong and mighty. And so they hold out their child and they walk through the streets and say, God will keep him safe. God is stronger than Pharaoh. We trust in God. We believe in God and God will not let us down. That's how I imagine faith. Anybody else have a similar view of faith? why it's kind of, I'm the only one who has that view of faith. All right, this explains a lot for us as a church, but let's address that later. That's not at all what faith looks like here. I, I think it's really important. We need to notice something. The Bible specifically tells this part of Moses' story, and it's not even about Moses' faith. It's about the faith of his parents, and what this passage is telling us is that faith did the most practical thing anyone could think to do. They looked at their baby, they could not kill him, and they hid him from Pharaoh. I mean, that's about as practical as it gets. How else would you try to save your baby if not by hiding him? And I want you to remember something about this passage of scripture. The author of Hebrews is not always telling us how these are acts of faith. The author of Hebrews is telling us that they are acts of faith. So I want to be careful not to read too much into this, but here's what we know. Moses' parents hear this decree that all male children should be killed or else, and they, in response, hide that baby like almost every other family would have done to try and save their child. And what we know from Scripture is that practical act was an act of faith. They were putting their trust in God, not themselves. They had faith in God's great power more than their good plan. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And it tells us our first principle about faith. Here's the first principle about faith from this passage. Faith trusts God to be great in practical things. Faith trusts God to be great in practical things. Guys, you need to know this. Sometimes faith and a life of faith simply looks like doing the most practical things you can think to do. I might even say this. Most of the time, 
a life of faith that honors God and blesses us merely looks like a life of ordinary decisions. Sometimes faith hides the baby just because it makes sense. Here's another way of saying it, and here's the reason why I felt compelled to bring this to light for us this morning. Faith is not the same as foolishness. The the, the author of Hebrews is exposing something that can become a real lie that's held by the people of God, a a misuse of the idea of what it looks like to live by faith. There are some people who believe that faith is only faith if it appears to be foolishness. And you need to know this. There are times when faith certainly does obey when it doesn't make sense. As a matter of fact, faith always obeys even if it doesn't make sense. There are times when faith takes risky steps because God tells us to take those risks. Guys, there are times when faith steps out of a perfectly good boat into a stormy sea because Jesus calls us to do that. But you need to know this. Faith doesn't go around doing things that don't make sense just because they don't make sense. And faith doesn't just take unnecessary risks because that's what they think faith looks like. Faith doesn't make a habit of jumping out of perfectly good boats into stormy seas. Did you know that? Faith is not the same as foolishness. And a lot of us need to combat a wrong idea that we've developed about faith because we need to understand faith trusts God to be great even in ordinary things. Faith believes God is doing extraordinary through our ordinary. Let me give you a couple of examples of this, okay? Philippians chapter 4:19 says this, "But my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus in glory." You know, we believe by faith that God is going to meet our financial needs. Do you guys know that? We believe God will meet our financial needs. How many of y'all believe God's going to meet your financial needs? That's a pretty extraordinary thing, right? That it's not your job, and it's not your boss, and it's not this economy, and it's not our government, and it's no leader on the face of the earth, and it's no person that you work for or ever will work for. It's none of those things that cause your needs to be met. It's the extraordinary power of God that meets your needs. Do you believe that? That's called faith. Faith believes God does extraordinary things. And listen to me, at the exact same time, a life of faith balances its checkbook. Some of y'all need to get to work. A life of faith makes a budget. A life of faith lives within its means. That's why that kind of life is actually called faithful stewardship with God's money. Because faith expresses a trust that God will do extraordinary things as it's doing very ordinary things. Let me give you another example. Psalm 116, or 119 verse 116 says this, Uphold me according to your promise that I might live. Faith trusts that God's great power sustains our life. How many of you believe that it's God who makes your heart beat every day? It is God who keeps the cells of your body together. It's God who gives you life and brings you life and keeps bringing you life. It's God who does that extraordinary thing. So a life of faith trusts that God 
gives you life by his great power. And at the exact same time, a life of faith eats a healthy diet. Oh, I know this is a Baptist church and that's not how, that's dangerous, right? A life of faith gets enough sleep. A life of faith might even exercise every now and then. Yeah, that's dangerous, right? I'm making that kid cry by this kind of talk. I get it. He was born a Baptist. Sorry, Tristan. Faith trusts God to do extraordinary things while we're doing very ordinary things. Let me give you one last example of that. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That, that includes our life within marriage and relationships. So it means this. Faith trusts that God is doing an extraordinary thing, that by His great power, He is giving you the ability to have a healthy marriage. God's doing that God's overcoming your sin and the patterns of your past and present. He's giving you the power to have a healthy marriage. That's why marriage is a covenant between two people and God. We're saying we can't do this without the power of God. God's doing an extraordinary thing by his great power. And at the same time, a life of faith helps your spouse around the house. Can I get a witness? (laughs) I didn't, and I don't know why. A life of faith continues to pursue your spouse through the lean times of marriage. A life of faith does everything within your power to support and build up your spouse. That's why that kind of life is part of what it means to be faithful to your wedding vows because a life of faith trusts God to be doing extraordinary things by his great power in the middle of our practical Life. One of the reasons why I bring that up and why I would kind of detail that out for us as a church is I believe many of us have bought into this lie about what it means to live by faith about God. There are a lot of us who come to a series on Hebrews chapter 11 and we read these stories about great people throughout the history of the world and we begin to believe this lie that we have to wait for some big extravagant moment in our life to happen so that we can finally exercise this kind of faith. We read about the life of a guy named Noah or the life of a guy named Abraham or the life of a guy named Joseph and we think, you know, I need to be able to build an ark when that flood comes in order to sustain or to express my faith. I need to hear the voice from heaven tell me to climb that mountain with my son like Abraham before I can express faith like like Abraham did. Or I need to have, I need to have that, that prison moment of darkness and despair, the prolonged suffering in Egypt and rise to power as vice president of Egypt like Joseph before I can express that kind of faith like Joseph did. But you need to hear this, friend. You don't need to build an ark. You don't need to climb a mountain. And you don't need to rise to political prominence to exercise faith that blesses you and pleases God. You know why? Because the kind of faith in Hebrews 11 that we see Moses' parents express is the kind of faith that day in and day out believes God is doing extraordinary things through ordinary decisions. Faith trusts God to be great in practical things. Some of you are parents. And young parents, um, most of your days are going to look pretty ordinary 
They're, they're going to look like a lot of the same time over and over and over again. When I first had children, Emily and I, I think, felt like we lived the first five years of parenthood in that movie uh, Groundhog Day. You ever seen that one? Same day, over and over and over and over again. We'd get up tired, we'd go to bed tired, right? You'd, you'd spend the morning packing lunches. I'm so thankful this is spring break week. You know why? We don't have to pack lunches on spring break week. What a blessing. Packing lunches, washing clothes, preparing dinner, getting the kids through bath time without some major fight or anyone going crazy, right? Day in, day out, day in, day out. And most of our days, almost all of our moments are filled as parents with things that feel like just ordinary decisions. We're doing, in a lot of ways, what the family down the street is doing. And here's what you need to know. That doesn't mean you aren't living a life of faith. Because when you do those ordinary things as a mom or a dad, and your heart is trusting in those moments that God is great, not you, that God is extraordinary, not you, that his power is awesome, not your plan. When you do those things with a heart trusting in God to be great in your family, for your kids, with your spouse, that's a life of faith. Guys, when you are banking on God's grace and his mercy over your children and not your ability to make every day somehow this incredible mountaintop experience, but you're faithful in it with eyes set on God's grace, that's a life of faith. Believing God is doing extraordinary in the middle of your life that feels so ordinary. I think about shut-ins that aren't in this room because they can't get out anymore. They're listening over the radio or the internet. Most of our shut-ins, those of you who are even hearing me right now in your homes, you're living a life that feels very ordinary. You feel like each day is more and more of the same. You remember times when you could get out and now you can't get out. You can't do big. You can't do extravagant. You don't feel extraordinary. Friend, that does not mean that isn't a life of faith. Because when a shut-in prays for the people in her life and she asks God to do what only he can do even though she'll never see them during that day and may not see some of those people again, when that shut-in shows kindness and grace to the people around them desiring for God to take that bit of kindness and that bit of grace and to do amazing things. When, when that shut-in does what she does with a heart that's trusting in God to be great more than her plan or her power, that's a life of faith. Guys, most of life, in and out, day in, day out, week in, week out, is a life that boils down to pretty ordinary decisions. Like, what are you going to do for lunch today? Seriously, and what are we doing for lunch today? I'm starting to get hungry. Second service. (laughs) And all those daily ordinary things, faith trusts God to be great in the midst of our practical things. But then there's a convergence here that happens in Moses' life. Most of his life was just an ordinary life in a sense, but... There are moments in his life like ours where he's faced with choices that go beyond what ordinary days call for. Moments that aren't about choosing the status quo or not or going along with the current and flow of our world. And in those moments, faith doesn't just trust that God will be great in practical things. Here's the second principle of faith in the life of Moses. Faith trusts God to be good in painful things. 
Faith trusts God to be great in practical things, and faith trusts God to be good in painful things. Before we read these verses, just catch up with the story of Moses. Many of you already know it. Charlton Heston did a great job with it a few years ago. Eventually, Moses' parents weren't able to hide him anymore. And when they were unable to hide him, they did another practical thing, the most practical thing they could think of. They, they tried to find a way to get him to safety. So they, they built a little, a little boat, a little basket that was able to float down the river. They put that boat in the river and it floated down into a section of river by God's providence where Pharaoh's daughter and her servants were at the river and they saw Moses in his basket. They get him and the daughter of Pharaoh basically adopts Moses, which means Moses is raised as part of the royal family of Egypt. And we don't know the whole story. The Bible doesn't give us all of the details, but somehow Moses is both raised as a member of the Egyptian royal family and he knows that he's a Hebrew by birth and not an Egyptian. So when Moses grows up, there's a moment in time where he looks out over Egypt and he sees a couple of things. He looks out over Egypt and he sees the prosperity of the Egyptians. It would have been hard to miss. Ancient Egypt was one of the most influential ancient kingdoms in the entire history of the world. They had engineering marvels that we still scratch our head and wonder about with all of our modern technology. They were able to harness the flooding of the Nile River so that they could ensure their crops had abundant water and were able to produce in times of famine as well as times of plenty. Their army was dominant. No one could stand in their presence for a period of time. The pyramids still stand to this day as a testimony of their cultural genius and their contribution to the history of the world. And Moses, in that time, at its zenith, looks out over the prosperity of Egypt, and he looks out and says this, as Pharaoh's daughter's son, I I could experience that if I choose. I can have that if I choose. And at the exact same time, the Bible says in Exodus 2 that Moses looked out over Egypt and he saw the suffering of the Jews. Now just think about what it would have been like to be a slave in ancient times, to be considered the property of Pharaoh himself. All of the great structures that Moses would have seen were built by the backbreaking labor of slaves like the Israelites. They suffered terribly. Taskmasters could beat them without mercy if they so choose. And Moses, the prince of Egypt, looks out over Egypt and not only does he see the prosperity of the Egyptians, he sees the suffering of the Jews and he says to himself as well, and I could have that if I choose. I I could experience that if I wanted to. And look at the choice that he made. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What choice did he make? Moses chose mistreatment over pleasure. He chose reproach of Christ over treasure of Egypt. And I hope you know that choice still exists for us today. 
Every teenager who chooses purity and Christ-likeness is saying, in effect, I'd rather be an outsider with my peers and have Jesus than to have the pleasures that come from sexual immorality or the popularity of being in a certain crowd and go with the flow of culture. Every business person who chooses honesty and integrity is saying, I'd rather go without the treasure of this world and have Jesus than to cheat and lie in order to get more wealth. Every person who becomes a follower of Jesus out of a a certain lifestyle, this is every follower of Jesus has to step out of the life they had before Christ and say, in effect, I would rather have the hardship that comes from giving up my life on this earth than to have all this world is offering and not have Jesus. Guys, that is the choice of following Christ. And it's for us today. And I want you to notice what it is that compels someone's heart to make that kind of choice. Because Moses wasn't just looking at the prosperity of the Egyptians, and he wasn't just looking at the suffering of the Jews. Look at the last phrase of verse 26. He was looking at something else. For he was looking to the reward. Guys, Moses made the decision he made because he lived his life on this earth looking forward to what God had promised, a reward that is preserved for those who trust in Jesus. We just said it at the beginning of this sermon. Over and over again, Hebrews 11 shares with us that faith looks forward to future blessings we don't have yet. And when Moses was faced with the choice between the hardship that comes from following Christ and the fleeting pleasures of sin, he chose Jesus because he looked out over his future and he said this, one day, one day, while it's going to be hard now, and while there's suffering that comes and there's reproach and there's self-denial, one day, one day, it will be worth it all. One day, he says, all this stuff in Egypt Even the pyramids that are still standing thousands of years later, he says all of this stuff in Egypt is going to fade away and the reward of Jesus will be worth it on that day. I will be glad I didn't live a life for a fading kingdom. And you need to know this, guys. While the first statement is absolutely true and most of our life is filled with ordinary decisions through ordinary days, faith still makes this choice day in and day out. Faith weighs the choices between the pleasure of this world and the treasure of what Jesus has to offer, what he has in store for our future. And faith says, I'd rather have Jesus. It will be worth it. And we face hardship and self-denial and reproach, sometimes suffering and pain, always a turning away from the stuff the world is selling as the American dream that many of us are tempted to sell out for. And we say, if it costs me everything, Jesus will be worth it. Many of you guys know the story of a 
another young man who was born, not Moses, a guy who was born in Portland, Oregon in 1927. He was an intelligent, influential young man. He showed so much promise that his teachers and his family firmly believed that he could have a successful career in any field he chose. He could have lived out the American dream in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and had a long and prosperous career in the States. But at a young age, Jesus captured this young man's heart, and it became his desire to tell people about Jesus, especially people who had never heard the name of Jesus before and probably never would hear the name of Jesus unless someone like him went to them. And there was a group that actually... God laid on his heart. It was an indigenous tribe of Indians in the jungles of Ecuador, the Alca Indians. They were a notorious tribe that had never been reached by outside groups without attacking them. So they were largely sheltered from the outside world. People were fearful of them because many had been killed by them. The young man's name was Jim Elliott. He believed God was calling him to go to those people, but it meant that he would have to lay aside every other dream every other person had for him. You might imagine some of his family, many of his friends expressed concern that it was foolish for a young, talented man in his 20s who could do whatever he wanted to do to risk his life to go into such a dangerous place. And many of you have heard the quote from Jim Elliott in his response to their concerns. Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you know the story. In January of 1956, a 28-year-old Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungle of Ecuador. And when they landed, they built a hut and they waited for the Alcas to come and find them. By January 8th, not even a week later, all five of those young missionaries were killed by the Alca Indians. Some of you have read the stories in the books In the years that followed, that entire tribe converted to Christianity because of what they experienced at the death of those young missionaries. Life magazine even ran a 10-page article on the story of Jim Elliott's life. Since then, thousands of people in America have surrendered their life to missionary service among the people of the earth as a result of God stirring and inspiring them by the story of Jim Elliott. But before any of those great big things occurred. The days that followed their death were really dark. A search party was launched to find those men, and one of the things they recovered was Jim Elliott's journal. And as he sat in that hut waiting for the Alcas to come find them, on the last day of his life, Jim Elliott wrote this, Oh Jesus, master and center and end of all. How long before that glory is yours, which you have so long awaited? Now there is no thought of you among men, but then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised, but then none shall care for any other's merit. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. Moments before his life ended on earth in what the world would call a tragic death, Jim Elliot sat down and looked forward to the day that Jesus would come and settle the score. And when I read the account of this man before he dies, I read the words of someone who says, it may cost me everything and Jesus is worth it. 
And I just want to ask you this. What does that choice look like in your life today? I know that most of us in this room are not being asked to step into remote jungles among hostile people, though some of us may one day do that. But every single one of us are living within that kind of a choice. There are pleasures of this world that are trying to call you away from Jesus. And my question for you is, are you living like Jesus is worth it? There are things that God is calling you to lay aside for his kingdom. And I'm asking you today, are you living like Jesus is worth it? Because a life of faith that most of the time feels so ordinary and trusts God to be great in the middle of practical things is also the kind of faith that takes a step out of our comfort zone when God speaks. The kind of faith that is willing to lose it all in order to gain more than we could imagine. Faith trusts God to be great in practical things. And guys, faith trusts God to be good and painful things. So what in your life is saying loudly, it may cost me everything. And if it does, Jesus is worth it. Most of us will live and die in what feels like a really ordinary life. Most of us will. But your life is anything than ordinary when you live like you're willing to lay it all down because Jesus is worth it. Would you bow your heads with me? And before we go into the rest of our day, would you consider the truths of what we've just discussed? First, has there come a time in your life when you've seen that Jesus is beautiful? And you've seen that he's beautiful precisely because you realize that you're sinful. You've broken God's laws, his commands, and they've separated you from God, and you can't make yourself right again. No matter all you do, you can't make yourself right. And you found that Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't live, and he died the death you should have died so that he could provide for the forgiveness of all your sin. Have you ever seen Jesus as a beautiful Lord and Savior and called out to him confessing your sin and your brokenness and asking him to save you, to rule over your life, to restore you to God? If you've never called on Jesus, would you call on him right now? Acknowledge your brokenness, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge his grace and his mercy and call on Jesus the end of our service pastors will be down front we would love to pray with you about your relationship with Jesus but I know that there are most of you in this room who would say I'm a follower of Christ I'm I'm trusting in Jesus to make me right with God And some of you are struggling because your life feels so ordinary (laughs) would you just ask God right now to 
stir up faith in his greatness in the middle of your ordinary life? That you'd believe that in your job, working faithfully day after day, doing things that don't necessarily look like they're always eternally significant, but as you faithfully do them, you're trusting that God's going to give you opportunity to show his love and his mercy and grace to people. That he's going to do extraordinary within your ordinary. Would you, would you ask him for faith to believe that? To trust him in the middle of your ordinary life? That he will be great in your practical things. And as I spoke about laying it all down, some of you know exactly what God's calling you to lay aside. Some of you know the temptations that are in your heart that on a daily basis causing you to doubt that Jesus is more wonderful than the pleasure of that sin. It's causing you to wonder if Jesus is worth the sacrifice of that thing. In this moment, would you, would you pray that God would give you faith to believe Jesus is worth it? That moving out, you'd choose over and over and over again to lay it all down for the sake of Jesus, to pursue a reward that's beyond this life and out of this world. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that you are great and good. You are great in the middle of our ordinary days and our practical things. Father, you're good in the middle of our pain. You're good in the middle of our suffering. And Father, help us to live lives we won't regret living. Lives that at the end of it all will have shown to be about a kingdom that won't fade away. A life that's about a a Jesus who's glorious and wonderful. That we would live like we believe There is great reward. Jesus is worth it. God, make us those kinds of people. Lord, we love you and we bless you and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.